On today's extra special episode, I watched a movie called Batman from 1989, and I gotta say, I kinda liked it. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, I've got one movie to cover and one movie alone, and I'd like to share my first experience with this one. It's pretty brief, but it involves my grandparents, as these stories often do. And I was at their house, and they had HBO... And HBO was a foreign concept to me, honestly. It was so weird. There's this channel that just plays movies and doesn't have commercials for real. That's fucking awesome. But my grandparents always had HBO, and so they were playing HBO, and it happened to have Batman on. And I came walking across the living room and noticed what was on, and I saw Batman toward the end of the movie walking across the belfry, and... Basically, I was just fucking floored. I couldn't fucking believe what I was seeing. I instantly fell in love with it. I couldn't get enough. It was Batman everything from there on out. Of course, you know, naturally, I haven't stayed as hardcore of a Batman fan every year of my life. I had my teenage years and things like that where I wasn't so hardcore, but I still was a fan, obviously. I love the character. People ask me all the time, what is it about Batman that you love so much? And there's just so much to love, but I can only pinpoint this one moment with my grandparents where I basically just fell in love. And, you know, it was lucky because it was the tail end of the movie and I wanted to see the whole thing. And luckily, my grandma happened to have a VHS copy of Batman, one that she had purchased. And she let me borrow it, and then it subsequently became mine because I'm just that kind of guy. I just, I had to have it, and so she let me keep it. And so I just, I can't get enough of this movie in particular. I just love every second of it. Even the things that aren't so great, I still love them. So I guess that's the story on that. I mean, I don't really have an explanation. There's so much about Batman that I like, but to just go into everything about Batman is a bit much, so I won't bore you with all of that. But I did want to talk about some graphic novels that feature Batman or mostly are starring Batman in them. That list could only start with The Dark Knight Returns, which came out in the mid-1980s, and it was a very dark story, and it largely influenced Batman going forward. It really set the tone for what kind of character he was going forward. I just really liked how he was portrayed in the story and the way everything worked with these crazy plot elements and things like that. It just really was a solid story and it was very well told. And then we have Batman The Long Halloween, and that one is one where Batman is investigating these murders that keep happening on the different holidays throughout the year, and it really is a cool story. It really does a great job. I mean, it's got a lot of great art in it, and it's got so many cool 
elements and they really bring it all together and you really are guessing who the hell is this holiday killer. Then we have Batman the Killing Joke, which was a large influence on this movie, Batman 1989. And that one I haven't read in over 15 years, but I really remember enjoying it. They made it into an animated feature a few years back, and I wasn't impressed with it. They added a lot of stuff to the story, and they also got Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill, and I love those guys so much. I love their portrayals of these characters, Batman being Kevin Conroy and Joker being Mark Hamill. And I just felt like their performances, I don't know if it was like deliberately so, but it felt like their performances were kind of flat, honestly. Then we have Batman Year One, and that one's a solid early tale of Batman, obviously. We see Batman come to be and all of these things that he deals with when he first emerges, and he basically sets the tone for his presence in Gotham City and things like that. Then there's Batman Hush, which has a shit ton of characters in it, and I really like the story. I know a lot of people criticize it because it's like they basically took it and ran with it to just get as many characters as they could into it, and it felt kind of cheap from that aspect, but I still really like it. I don't have that problem. Batman the Black Mirror is a solid one, and that is actually, I believe, when Dick Grayson has taken up the mantle of Batman, and it's kind of amusing because basically everybody in that story recognizes that this guy that's in the Batman costume is not Batman at all. He just doesn't act the same way and things like that. It's a pretty solid story. I can't really remember the plot super well. I just remember coming away from it thinking I really liked it. And then there's Batman Year 100, which is exactly what it sounds like it would be. It's when Batman is super old and decrepit and he's still fucking doing it and he's still fighting crime and doing things like that and People are investigating him and they can't really believe that he's still around and things like that. Then there's Batman, the man who laughs. And that's, I believe, a Joker origin story. I haven't read it in a really long time. I really liked it. I thought it was a really well done story. It's got really memorable artwork in it and stuff. Then there's Batman Venom, which tells the story of Batman not being strong enough to save somebody And he obsesses over this fact until he ultimately decides that he wants to take these strength-enhancing drugs that are super addictive and stuff like that. It's a really good story. Batman basically has to overcome this addiction and he has to go and he has to save Alfred. And it's a little ridiculous, but it's a really good story. I really like it. Then there's Batman Birth of the Demon. That one tells the story about Ra's al Ghul, who is a villain. And he and Batman are kind of like working together for a little bit. But Batman knows that Ra's al Ghul is no good. But Ra's al Ghul has this super attractive daughter named Talia. And Batman's basically in love with her and she's in love with him. And they kind of have a baby. I don't remember the book actually being that much about them having the baby so much as the events leading up to having a baby. Then there's Batman Under the Red Hood. That tells the story about Jason Todd, who was the second Robin. He took over after Dick Grayson moved on to be Nightwing. Honestly, it's such a fucking solid story. Jason Todd gets killed by the Joker in a different story. It's very enjoyable. I mean, like, it's really cool. They make him, like, come back to life, and they explain how that happens. And he's this renegade fucking 
vigilante that uses deadly force to do what he needs to do, unlike Batman in most stories. Then there's Batman No Man's Land, which is an epic arc about just basically, I think it was Gotham City being taken over by the criminals and Batman having to infiltrate it to rectify the situation. And it's a very long arc. It's got a lot of volumes on it. So it's very enjoyable, though. And then more recently, there was one called Batman White Knight. And that tells the story of Joker reforming himself, like kind of rehabilitating. And he becomes a prominent political figure, I think. It's a really solid story. There's a lot of referential things in the story, kind of calling back to other iterations of Batman. Like he has the different Batmobiles in the Batcave and things like that. And it's pretty fucking awesome. I love it a lot. But I guess, you know, I might as well just dive into this movie. So Batman was released on June 23rd, 1989, based on DC Comics characters and stories created and developed by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. It was directed by Tim Burton, and I want to do something to make this a little fun. So instead of like I normally do going through each of the cast and crew and briefly touching on some of the high points of their filmographies, I thought it would be a cool idea to pitch my idea for basically if they were going to remake this movie, who I would want in some of those key spots in the cast and in the crew. Starting with Tim Burton, you know, for the director, I would say I would love to see David Fincher or Steven Spielberg do this movie. I'd love to see what they could do with it. It doesn't really seem like the kind of movie that David Fincher would go in for, but I think he would be awesome. You know, I think he would really do a good job. And then Steven Spielberg, you'll find out later, expressed interest in creating a Batman movie years ago, and he was going to have all these goofy people in it, but... I think he would do a really good job if he respected the source material and things like that. I think Spielberg is one of the best of all time. He's just fucking great. For the writers, we have Sam Hamm and Warren Skarin. And my fantasy picks for those guys would be Kevin Smith and Frank Miller. And I think those two together could be great. I would love to see if they could turn a new Batman movie into a Sin City style Batman movie. I think that would be fucking incredible. I think that would be the way to go with it. It would be the ultimate fucking awesome movie, in my opinion. For the producers, we have John Peters and Peter Goober. For the score, we have composer Danny Elfman, and I would pick John Williams or Howard Shore to do this movie. Howard Shore is the guy that did the Lord of the Rings movies, John Williams, honestly, if I could just get a theme out of John Williams, I would be fucking set for life. If he did a Batman theme, I think it would be fucking amazing. So the soundtrack actually features original music by Prince, and the Prince songs most prominently featured in this film include Party Man and Trust. For the cast, we have Michael Keaton, who plays Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Batman is also known as the Dark Knight, the Cape Crusader, and the world's greatest detective. Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered when he was a boy by a mysterious gunman, and he transformed his grief into an unending mission to stop crime dressed as a vigilante known as Batman. I would love to see... This is always tough for me. I never really know who to say for sure that I'd like to see play Batman. It's just I know it when I see it, whether or not I'll like it. But I would love to see Jensen Ackles, who actually voiced 
Batman in a couple of different animated features. He did a really good job. I think he's got the look for it. He's got the style. I think it's it's all there. I think he would be great for it. Jake Gyllenhaal would be another good one. I'm a huge Jake Gyllenhaal fan, and I think he could really do justice to the character. And then last but not least, Josh Brolin. I think he might be aged out of the role, but if they went in the direction of The Dark Knight Returns, which I don't think they would do at this point, I would love to see an older, more established Batman in Josh Brolin. I think he would be perfect for it. And if we could have gotten a younger Josh Brolin to play younger Batman, that would have been amazing too. Then we have Jack Nicholson, who plays Jack Napier slash the Joker. The Joker is also known as the Clown Prince of Crime. In this version of the Joker's story, Jack Napier is the right-hand man of a famous mobster who sets him up and sends him to his death. And after an altercation with Batman, he is transformed into the Joker. I would love to see Tom Hiddleston portray this character. I think he'd be great. He was Loki in the Marvel movies. And then there's Willem Dafoe, who is an easy choice. I think he's also kind of aging out of the role, so that's unfortunate. But he would have been fucking perfect for this role, in my opinion. And then there's... Iwan Rayon, who plays Ramsey in Game of Thrones, and I really think that he'd be fucking solid in this part. I think he could play the evil, maniacal guy just like Ramsey was in Game of Thrones. I think he would just do a really good job. Then we have Kim Basinger, who plays Vicki Vale. She's a photojournalist who comes to Gotham City to work on a story on the Batman after making a name for herself covering a tragic story that was published in a major magazine. Kate Beckinsale, Rachel McAdams, or Alice Eve are all actresses that I truly love for all sorts of different reasons, and I would love to see them play the character. I think that they would do an amazing job. I think, honestly, Rachel McAdams would be the front runner for me, but I would also like to see the other two very much as well. Then we have Robert Wool, who plays Alexander Knox. Knox is a reporter for a Gotham City newspaper who was initially mocked by his peers for his belief in the existence of Batman, but once Batman's existence is pretty much proven, they probably just mock him for being a total dipshit because that's what he is. I'd like to see James Marsden or Casey Affleck in this movie as Alexander Knox. I don't really want it to be the same, though. I want them to go into a completely different direction with the character. I think it would be a lot better if they did. But honestly, those two were the best I could think of. There wasn't really somebody that stood out because I don't have an image of what that new character would really look like and who would be perfect for it. Billy D. Williams plays Harvey Dent, and he's a new district attorney with a mission to root out corruption and organized crime in Gotham City. I'd love to see him played by Idris Elba, Timothy Oliphant, or Miles Teller, All of those guys have their fucking acting chops. They're fucking amazing. I think they do a really good job with the part. Pat Hingle plays Commissioner Gordon, and he's the head of the Gotham City Police Department and eventual law enforcement liaison to Batman. I'd love, love, love to see Brian Cranston play that role. I think it would be amazing, you know, get a little mustache going, have all that shit. Him or Guy Pierce, I think Brian Cranston is a very clear front runner for me. He's just so good. He's actually portrayed the character in animated features as well, and he's very good at it. I just, I think he would be perfect. Then last but not least, we have Michael Goff, who plays Alfred Pennyworth, and he is Bruce Wayne slash Batman's live-in butler, 
and he also served as Bruce's guardian following the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne. I'd like to see Ian McKellen or Anthony Hopkins play this part. I don't know if maybe they're um, a little, I don't know if they're the, the perfect choices for this part, but I would I would still love to see them. I think they could do it really great justice. For casting notes, many major Hollywood stars were considered for the role of Batman, including Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Pierce Brosnan, Willem Dafoe, Bill Murray, Harrison Ford, and Dennis Quaid. There were 50,000 protest letters sent to the Warner Brothers offices arguing against Keaton's casting when they first announced it. Many false rumors have surfaced over the years that Willem Dafoe was considered to play the Joker, but these were evidently not true, per Wikipedia. But despite that, Willem Dafoe himself actually said that he was talked about very early on to play the role, so... Who knows what to believe in that scenario. Among those who were considered for the Joker were Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow, Brad Dourif, Ray Liotta, John Glover, and James Woods. Robin Williams reportedly lobbied very hard for the part, and I'll talk more about what happened with the whole Robin Williams thing a little later on. Sean Young was originally cast as Vicki Vale, but was injured in a horse riding accident that kept her out of playing the role. The story is that Jack Nicholson actually threatened to walk if his friend Tracy Walter wasn't cast in this movie, and I find that so astounding, but it is a very Jack Nicholson-sounding thing to do. Don Johnson and William Peterson were considered for the role of Harvey Dent. Kiefer Sutherland was offered the role of Dick Grayson and turned it down before the character was subsequently written out of the plot, and he basically was terrified because he turned this down thinking... It was going to be the 1960s campy Batman with Robin in tights and goofy little shoes and shit like that. So he didn't really want to be running around on screen like that. Little did he know that it probably wouldn't have been at all like that if the character would have made it into the cut. Martin Landau, Christopher Lee, and Albert Finney were considered for the role of Carl Grissom, which ultimately went to Jack Palance. For the plot synopsis, as a mysterious masked vigilante surfaces and begins to shake up the world of crime in Gotham City, a new villain emerges and hatches an evil plot to kill citizens on a large scale, and the vigilante must get to the bottom of his plans before it's too late. The tagline we just have, only one will claim the night. Pretty solid. Not great, but pretty solid. Alright guys, let's just dive right into this fucking movie. Okay, so... This movie definitely sets its tone very early as the opening credits takes us on a weird tour, winding around what turns out to be a stone bat symbol. Elfman's Batman theme starts off slow, and then it sort of turns into a march, and it gets pretty fucking awesome. I won't mention it enough, but the score in this movie is amazing to me, probably top 5 or top 10 all time for me. Then we get to see Gotham City in all of its glory. It's actually a bit of a dark and rundown shithole, to be completely honest. A family comprised of a husband, wife, and their preteen son are lost and are trying to hail a cab, as we see. There are unseemly characters about on the streets, including what I guess is a hooker trying to proposition this kid. Or at least she's trying to talk to him and she kind of acts pissy when they ignore her, but it's like, you're a fucking hooker and this is a preteen child, what are you fucking doing? I almost forgot to remind you that if you're a first-time viewer of this movie and you know anything about Batman, 
you might get the impression that this is Bruce Wayne and his parents. But this dad is way too fucking big of an idiot to actually be Thomas Wayne, to be honest. I don't really think that it's convincing. I mean, I could see if you're watching it in 1989 thinking, oh God, this is nothing like I want it to be. But they do really let you think that it's the Waynes for sure. I mean, it's not like they're not aware of the similarities in the characters. This has probably been pointed out before, but a better way to get a cab would have to be standing in the same place instead of walking all over. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you get lost in a store. You're supposed to stay put, and that usually ups your chances of being found. This kid pulls out an actual fucking paper map, just like in olden times. Like, as they're walking around, he's just looking at this map, telling the dad that he's going the wrong way and things like that. The dad refers to him as Jimmy, and your whole theory that this is young Bruce Wayne just flies out the fucking window. But that's actually a relief, because I didn't really want this to be Bruce Wayne and Thomas and Martha Wayne. I didn't like that idea at all. The family cuts through a back alley, and there's just no way that's a bad idea in a town like this. The filthiest-looking, seemingly homeless man on Earth asks the dad for a dollar, and the dad straight-up ignores him. I don't know what etiquette to observe with homeless people. I mean, if they're begging for money, do you say no, I'm sorry to them, or do you ignore them like this guy does? I want to say that ignoring would probably be the best route. You just want to avoid any interaction with anyone if possible. And that's actually my policy on people in general. Suddenly the family goes to round a corner and the dad is knocked out by the butt of what appears to be a snub-nosed revolver or something. It's the beggar and some other guy who are going to rob the dad. One of the muggers tells the mom, Hey lady, do the kid a favor. Don't scream. Then like the second the muggers run away, she starts screaming her fucking ass off. They show what is supposed to be an overhead shot of Batman who seemingly has seen this altercation and leaves whatever ledge he's on to pursue the bad guys. For that shot, we get some of the very first uses of what is pretty primitive CGI in this movie and it only looks bad if you pay attention to it at all, or even think about it even a little bit. The two muggers are elsewhere on a rooftop going through the loot that they got from the mugging. Of the hundreds of times I've watched this, I never knew that these guys were named Nick and Eddie. Thank you, Amazon X-Ray. X-Ray is awesome. It tells you what actors and characters are in the scenes. It often tells you the names of songs that are playing, and you can even look at IMDb trivia sometimes. It's not like pop-up video you know you remember when they used to have pop-up video on like vh1 or whatever it's not like that unfortunately i would really love that if they would pop up and say hey this was accomplished by doing that or you know this whole thing was this explanation and it's just i really want it to be more like that but it's not so that's unfortunate nick finds an american express card and jokingly says don't leave home without it And that's just one of the many reasons to never reference modern commercials in your film if you don't want it to age poorly. Eddie is seemingly uneasy up on this rooftop. He wants to leave the roof they're on and go somewhere else, and evidently Eddie heard about this guy named Johnny Gobbs who died in a rooftop-related accident. Then Nick says that Gobbs just got ripped and took a walk off a roof, okay? No big loss. But Eddie says that he heard that the bat got him. And they argue about the bat being real or fake, and Eddie claims that this Johnny Gobbs guy just fell eight stories straight down and there wasn't any blood in his body, suggesting that Batman actually has vampiric tendencies, which is pretty amusing. But Nick is still very skeptical of the whole story. 
I just love the idea that there's all of these urban legends spreading throughout the criminal underworld that is at least keeping some guys on their toes. Batman would only feel like a legend or a myth until you truly saw him for yourself, though, I think. I'd probably not believe in him initially, but if I saw him, obviously I'd have to believe in him. But the more you heard about him, the more that I think you'd ultimately believe in him. We get this fucking cool-ass shot of Batman slowly dropping down behind these criminals, unnoticed, with his cape stretched out. The wingspan comes above the sides of his head. Nick insists the bat doesn't exist as they fail to recognize that Batman is quite literally right behind them. Suddenly, they realize Batman is there, and they get up and fire a few shots at him, and Batman falls to the dirt, but of course, much to their dismay, Batman quickly gets up, and he's back on his feet and moves to apprehend them. It's like they've never heard of fucking bulletproof vests before, and they take this to mean that Batman is superhuman or something, I guess? How long have actual bulletproof vests been around? I I had to Google it, because Wikipedia says that they've existed for quite a few centuries, like as early as the 1500s. So basically, they've been around almost as long as guns have been around. So it's not like they're some new fucking crazy technology. I mean, they were used in both world wars, and by 1989, I think this would not have been a shock to them to see a bulletproof vest type thing. Batman kicks Eddie through a door and puts him down for the count, I guess. Then he catches Nick's leg with a bat rope with a neat bat-shaped hook device on it. He drags Nick over toward him and picks Nick up by the front of his coat and takes him over to a ledge. Batman is letting Nick dangle there, and Nick is pleading with Batman not to kill him. Batman assures Nick that he does not intend to kill him so long as he spreads the word about him to his criminal friends. Nick says, what are you? And he just replies, I'm Batman, and throws Nick back onto the roof and jumps down into the alley below and disappears. Little trivia on that, Michael Keaton actually came up with a famous I'm Batman line. The line in the script was, I am the knight. But I've got to say, I feel like holding a dude that you don't intend to kill off a ledge by his coat like that is a great way to accidentally kill him. I mean, that dude could have easily slipped down in his clothes, and Batman could have accidentally dropped him. I mean, it wouldn't be that far-fetched to think that. But who cares? Batman is not above killing in this iteration of the character. Then we see the intro of our new district attorney for Gotham City, Harvey Dent, at a banquet with a bunch of presumably important people present. Harvey Dent is played by Billy D. Williams, who also played Lando Calrissian in the Star Wars movies. I love the beginning of Harvey's speech here. He says... People of Gotham City, I'm a man of few words, but those words will count, and so will my actions. And he proceeds to go off on what he intends to do about organized crime in the city. Meanwhile, Jack Napier is watching the speech on TV with a woman named Alicia. Jack is played by Jack Nicholson. His character is not from the comics, and it seems like he was created to maybe make this narrative a little more grounded or something. I don't really know why they chose to do it like this, but they did, so... What can you do? Alicia is a quintessential late 80s gal. Her hair alone makes her fit the era so flawlessly. She's actually very good looking, but she's not on the level of certain other female characters that are yet to be revealed in this movie. Jack is playing off Dent's aggressive words by acting unconcerned, saying that his boss Carl Grissom would have killed Dent if Dent had anything on him. Jack's relationship with Alicia is kind of confusing to me. Alicia is actually Carl's lady, and she's cheating on Carl with Jack. But Jack doesn't really seem particularly interested in anything about her. 
and his half of their interactions completely lacks an affection or emotion. Like, why would you risk that if you seemingly don't give a shit about her and are actively annoyed by her existence? Why would you be with her if she's with your boss? Why would you risk that? My god, these two upcoming characters are the fucking best, especially when they interact with each other since they're like polar opposites personality-wise. We get Lieutenant Eckhart, who is at the crime scene with the muggers that Batman took down earlier. Eckhart is played by William Hootkins, who played Porkins in the Star Wars movies. He was an X-Wing pilot. I guess if I was Nick the mugger, at the very least, I wouldn't have hung around to wait for the police to show up. I mean, he wasn't injured, he just got scared. You've got to book it in that situation just to save yourself. You could just vow to stop with the life of crime and go on the straight and narrow and you'll be fine. So Eckhart is not super chatty and when he hears what seems to be another bat story that they've been telling, he tells another cop that they've been drinking Drano. Then reporter Alexander Knox shows up to ask Eckhart some questions. Knox is played by Robert Wool. Knox is very big on the Batman story and claims that there have been eight bat sightings now in just under a month. Eckhart dismisses Knox's suggestions and claims that the two men here just slipped on a banana peel, and I guess that's him joking, it's kinda ridiculous. Then, a perfectly timed mugger comes by in cuffs, yelling, I'm telling you man, a giant bat! Seems like Eckhart could have gone without that happening. Eckhart tells Knox not to report about this whole thing, and Knox presses him about what people are saying in all of the urban legends out there. He says, Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? And if so, is he on the police payroll? And if so, what's he pulling down? After taxes. Which is a fucking great line. I don't absolutely love Knox in this movie, but he's alright. I really enjoy that line quite a bit. Eckhart leaves and goes to meet with Jack Napier in an alley, who gives him a bribe because, gasp, Eckhart is corrupt. Jack tells Eckhart that Harvey Dent has been investigating one of their front companies in the Grissom organization. Eckhart tells Jack that he answers to Carl Grissom, not to him, and goes on to suggest that Jack will never take over Grissom's organization, as Jack seems to think. Jack pushes Eckhart, and Eckhart pulls a gun on Jack, but Jack's man Bob the Goon also pulls a gun and kind of causes the confrontation to fizzle. Bob the Goon is played by Tracy Walter. He is the one who Nicholson threatened to walk if he didn't get cast in this movie. At the newspaper office, all of Knox's fellow writers are making fun of him for his Batman stories, and Knox tells them that they're Pulitzer Prize material, and he says it like it's super meaningful, but I mean... They all kind of laugh at him, you know, I mean, they don't really take it seriously. It's not like they're, oh no, not the Pulitzer Prize. I guess we should be cool with you now. Knox comes back to his desk to find Vicki Vale, a big-time photojournalist who introduces herself and expresses interest in collaborating with Knox on his bat stories. Vicki Vale is played by Stone Cold Fox Kim Basinger. Knox naturally assumes that this is some elaborate prank. Like, come on, a beautiful and famous photojournalist wants to work with him on stories he constantly gets mocked for? I can't really blame him for being skeptical in this scenario. But Vale truly shares his vision of the story and says that she has invitations to Bruce Wayne's charity benefit, and they hope to interview Commissioner Gordon there. It seems like a good plan, sort of. I mean, you're kind of crashing a party to be members of the press and annoy people, so that's not good. I've got to say, this is the first time I've ever watched this and noticed that certain scenes feel 
like they were made to look old or like I know they were going for like a timeless feel, but some of these scenes just look like they're straight out of the 80s and they'll never leave that time period for me. Meanwhile, with the mob, Carl Grissom works with Jack and company on what to do about Dent's investigation. Carl knows that he's fucked if Dent makes a connection to his organization and Axis Chemicals. Jack suggests breaking into the company's files and taking them and calling it industrial espionage. This seems like an okay idea if they make it a point to be quick, because that's really what's the concern right now. Grissom claims to like the idea, so he puts Jack in charge of it. Jack seems just a shade taken aback by this. He doesn't really want to be in charge of this operation. Then Alicia comes up in the elevator and exchanges glances with Jack on the way to the other room, and Grissom sees this happen. I don't think we're meant to believe that this single interaction is how Grissom figures out what's going on with them, but rather I think it means that we're to understand that Grissom already knows about it, and this is cluing the audience into that knowledge, because Grissom was already setting Jack up before he saw them and what they did just then. Jack tries to get out of doing the Axis Chemicals job, but Grissom insists, and then when Jack leaves, Grissom calls to inform Lieutenant Eckhart of the plan to set Jack up. At the charity ball at Wayne Manor, it's basically a casino night with a bunch of people in tuxes and dresses. This includes police officers, Mayor Borg, and Harvey Dent. Kim Basinger looks positively fucking radiant in this white dress that she's wearing. Like, honestly, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. Vicky approaches Bruce and asks if he knows where to find Bruce Wayne, because no one in these movies ever really seems to know what Bruce Wayne looks like. Bruce plays dumb, but intrigued, because, you know, she looks like Kim Basinger, so why wouldn't you be intrigued? He says he really doesn't know who Bruce Wayne is, and Knox strikes out with all of these important people while trying to get a statement on Batman. We see Commissioner Gordon get the news about what will be happening at Axis Chemicals, and he takes off when he hears that Eckhart is in charge of it, because he clearly knows what kind of guy Eckhart is. Meanwhile, Vicky and Knox decide to rudely explore Wayne Manor, looking around in places that are clearly not meant for partygoers. They walk through an antique arsenal room of sorts and comment on the different pieces on display, Bruce silently follows behind them and observes their conversation. Bruce introduces himself to Knox and Vicky, finally. Vicky says that she'll be staying in Gotham a while, doing the story on the Batman. Alfred comes and interrupts to tell Bruce about Gordon leaving unexpectedly, and Bruce dashes off, of course, because it's fucking Batman time. Bruce sits for a bit in his Batcave, which is decidedly a dedicated area away from his house, the way it should be. I'm looking at you, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. He looks through security surveillance footage and finds the moment where Gordon was informed about Axis chemicals. At the chemical plant, Eckhart instructs his men to shoot to kill when going after Jack. Jack's men break into the safe to find that they've been set up and there are no documents there, really. This whole chemical plant sequence is spectacular, to be honest. Initially, it's the police against the men Jack is with, but Gordon shows up and changes the orders to take Jack alive. He's clearly not a fan of Eckhart, since he probably knows how he operates. There's a lot of gunfire going on, and I just gotta say, they can't really verify the flammability of these chemicals, so it seems super fucking dangerous. Jack is flipping switches and pulling levers on this machine, and I've never felt more aware of something being fake and not actually connected to anything in a movie than I do here when 
he does this. It's like, you can tell that he's just flipping switches and pulling levers and they're just not doing anything at all. Batman shows up and sees one of the gangsters and shoots him with a bat grapnel. He seemingly catches him by his neck and pulls him over a high railing, but that can't be right because that dude would have immediately been strangled to death pretty fucking hardcore. So maybe he got him around the torso or by his clothes or something, I don't know. But in the 4K version, you can totally see the support cables holding the guy up when he's hanging there, and yeah, I doubt that they really wanted you to be able to see that. Jack sabotages more of the chemical tanks and machines to create diversions, and Jack goes upstairs without realizing that Batman is actually pursuing him. Gordon is sending men every which way to try and get to Jack, and as Jack is about to get a clean shot at Gordon, Batman swoops in just in the nick of time to get the gun out of his hand. Batman lifts Jack up by the front of his jacket, and Bob the Goon pulls a gun on Gordon and threatens to kill Gordon if Batman doesn't let go. So Batman puts Jack down, of course, and it's cool to see how they did this scene. They just had Jack Nicholson stand on a platform to make it look like he was being held up by Batman. Jack turns around to grab his gun after complimenting Batman's outfit, but when he goes to pull the gun on Batman, Batman has vanished. Then he looks down when he realizes Batman's gone, and he sees Eckhart from the catwalk, and he basically tells him to think about the future, and he shoots him dead from a distance. And that's a callback to an earlier conversation that they had where Jack was bribing Eckhart, and he was talking about taking over for Grissom, and basically it was like, Eckhart was telling him that that wasn't going to fucking happen. Then Batman reappears and Jack goes to shoot him, but Batman deflects the blast and the ricochet seemingly hits Jack right in the face and it looks all fucking gnarly. Like seriously, it looks like the bullet somehow passed through his face, like in one cheek and out the other somehow. I don't know how the fuck that works. Jack is in pure shock from the gunshot wound and falls over a railing. Batman tries to save him, but ultimately Jack falls all the way down into a vat of chemicals. And now Gordon is telling Batman to stay right where he is, and Batman is being converged on by a number of officers from both sides. He looks around, and then he smashes a smoke pellet and grapnels out of there in semi-secrecy because the smoke doesn't truly provide enough cover to hide him. But that's not really a problem, it's a movie. So Batman gets away from the police, and we see Jack's hand reach out of the chemical pool outside, and it's all discolored, but we know he's alive at least. Back at the paper, Knox is trying to get to the bottom of what happened at the chemical plant, and he's being given a terrible cover story. And as Knox is on the phone and says he wants to get the story on tape, for some reason he holds his recorder up to the mouthpiece of the phone, and I don't really understand why. You're not going to get the information you want. You don't want to record what you're saying. You want to record what they're saying, so you put it up to the earpiece. If I were a reporter, honestly, I would just bug my phone and then tell people when they called me or when I called them that I'd be recording all convos and just give people a heads up ahead of time. Vicky is trying to work out a Batman flight pattern and she reveals that she has a date with Bruce Wayne that night. We see this awkward ass date where they're sitting at opposite ends of a very long table and shouting to each other across it. I guess this is to be played up as funny, but it's almost too ridiculous for it to be that. They retreat to a smaller table in a kitchen somewhere, and they talk with Alfred for a bit. Alfred shares some embarrassing childhood story about Bruce, and then Alfred goes off to bed. 
Bruce and Vicky proceed to have what is probably the most awkward conversation ever after Alfred leaves. Vicky is like talking about how she used to go to this place in the summer with her family or something. And Bruce just says, that sounds nice. And it just, everything seems so flat with this interaction. But Vicky is already acting in this moment like she knows Bruce super well and like they're already really close. For those that don't know, Vicky Vale is a stage five clinger in this movie most of the time. Then we see Jack after having been worked on by some back alley plastic surgeon, and he obviously looks grotesque despite us not actually seeing him yet. Bruce and Vicky are still on their little date at Wayne Manor, and honestly, 1989 Kim Basinger might be as attractive as people can get. That's just my opinion. Jack shows up at Grissom's to confront Carl for setting him up at Axis Chemicals. Jack reveals that he is now a hideously transformed monster and refers to himself as the Joker. He proceeds to shoot Carl several times, ultimately killing him and laughing gaily. And I know we don't call many non-LGBTQ-related people or things gay nowadays, but I wanted to bring it back. Returning to Bruce and Vicky, they're in bed together, and Vicky wakes up to find Bruce hanging upside down by his feet in some sort of inversion contraption. I don't really like this moment. Why is Bruce having to hang upside down like a bat in this moment? I'm really not a fan. I think it's kind of stupid. Joker sits and reads a newspaper talking about Batman, and he's amping himself up about being the next big thing in Gotham. The next day, Vicky wakes Bruce up and wants to do more stuff with him, but Bruce has to decline. Bruce says he can't do anything because he's got a very important meeting that day. Vicky asks him what's wrong because he couldn't possibly just have a meeting that day and not be able to make it. He says he has to go out of town on business for a few days and they agree to get together when he gets back. But the dumb thing is, is why lie about what you're doing when what you're actually busy with is a very reasonable thing? You could just say, no, it's nothing against you. It's just that it's the anniversary of my parents' death and They died when I was young, and I just need a couple of days alone, and that's it. That's all you have to say. Then, that way, if she sees you out and about, she doesn't get suspicious about it because you're not really going out of town. She'll just know that this is your personal time, and it's time for you, not time for her. Then, of course, as she's leaving, she runs into Alfred on the stairs, and he totally blows up Bruce's story. Some fucking wingman, Alfred. She's like, I'll see you when you get back. And Alfred's like... Back, Miss Vale? We're going to be here for quite a while. It's like, yeah, Alfred, fucking read the room. You gotta fucking play it cool. You're not showing your hand. You gotta cover for Bruce. Joker reveals his new look to Alicia by surprising her, and she faints, and I'm still yet to see this happen in real life. What would it take for me to just faint from something? I don't really know that I can think of anything that would make me faint. Then Joker meets with the mobsters to tell them that he's taking over for Grissom, and he wants to run the city into the ground, starting with the 200th anniversary festival the city is planning. They want to know why they can't hear this from Grissom. One guy named Tony asks what happens if they say no to Joker, and the Joker electrocutes him to death with a hand buzzer. I'd like to know how they did this effect. I mean, basically it looks like the guy's face catches on fire. It doesn't look super good, but it Doesn't look terrible either. I just don't know how it was accomplished. Joker is made up to look like he has regular flesh tone in this scene, and it always looks fucking weird, honestly. So a little tidbit on that. 
In the film, Joker has to mask his chalk-white face by painting himself flesh-colored. In the script, it was specified that the Joker would have to take the flesh-colored makeup off to reveal the white skin underneath, meaning that the makeup effects team had to find a way to take one layer of makeup off and leave another intact. Makeup designer Nick Dudman came up with a solution. They painted Jack Nicholson with the white Pax paint that they always used, and then they put a thin layer of food-grade silicon oil, which nothing sticks to, on top of it. They then took flesh-colored grease paint and painstakingly painted it to where it was literally sitting on top of the oils. They then airbrushed and faded it in to make it look natural. After soaking the Joker's handkerchief in isopropyl alcohol, Nicholson was able to wipe at his face and it would strip off the grease paint but leave the white Pax paint intact. I always just assumed that for that they just put white paint or makeup on that rag and just wiped it on his forehead. It seems like that would have been way fucking easier. Joker basically sends the rest of the mobsters who are still alive on their way and just gives them time to think it over for a bit. I guess that's what happens here. Joker is just sending them on their way and there's not a chance that he's going to stand around for a few minutes and, you know, chat with a charred body or something like that. Joker sends Bob to tail Knox and find out what he knows about Batman. But I'm going to spoil it for you. Bob pretty much gets no information on Batman and it really never comes back at all. So don't worry about that. So naturally, Joker talks to this charred corpse and he reveals that he's just going to kill those other mobsters anyway because he knows he can't trust them, clearly. Knox is pissy with Vicky now that she's all hung up on Bruce. Vicky literally stakes out Wayne Manor and follows Bruce into the city because she's a rational human being with common sense. She's clearly done this before too. It's pretty ridiculous. But I don't get it. You could have anyone, Vic. Anyone! You're Vicky Vale, for Christ's sake. Why are you all hung up on him? I mean, he is filthy fucking rich, I'll give you that. Bruce leaves two roses at the site of his parents' death, but Vicky doesn't know that that's where his parents died, or that his parents are dead. Vicky comes and looks at the roses, and it seems pretty fucking disrespectful, like you don't touch shit like that. There's a press conference with those same mobsters Joker met with, and the main guy is claiming that he's taking over Grissom's operations. Knox makes a hilarious joke about how close the guy and Grissom must have been, and how they might have done time together as children. Ha 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 ha. Then we get this fucking sequence with these mimes. I swear to fucking God, mimes are the dumbest fucking thing ever. I don't like them. So Bob is snapping photos of the crowd on the down low, and it's pretty clear he's taking shots of, like, Knox and Vicky and things like that. It's not clear how he gets the photo of Knox that we end up seeing later, but hey, it's a movie, I guess. Then Joker shows up in a crazy outfit with his lips painted weirdly. He makes a big speech and then kills the main mobster with a quill or feather pen, if you will. He says, the pen is truly mightier than the sword. And it's just another fucking great line from this movie. A bunch of gunfire breaks out on the part of Joker's men, and the Joker takes off in the back of a car. Bruce is there and realizes that this mysterious Joker fellow is actually Jack Napier, and that he clearly didn't die, but he's obviously been through some shit. Vicky walks up to confront Bruce in the crowd, and he just basically looks at her and says nothing and fucking walks away. He's just too fucking perplexed by the whole Jack Napier thing, I guess. We get one of two destroyed TVs where Joker doesn't like what he sees on the news and shoots this spring-loaded boxing glove contraption at the TV to destroy it. 
The news suggests that Batman might be a mob enforcer, which really shows how far off base they are. Bruce shows up at home and has Alfred on Vicky's side, trying to convince him that she's the one. So he tells Alfred that Vicky is great because, I mean, fucking, yeah, she's pretty fucking great. Okay, so there's this moment that we get where Vicky calls Knox to have him do some digging, and she legitimately just asks him to find out what's so special about the alley at Pearl and Phillips Street, which is where Bruce left the roses. And I mean, even if Knox had Google at his disposal and searched the alley at the corner of this street and that street in a city that should be comparable in size to, like, New York City or Chicago at the very least... The results he would get would either be like millions of fucking murders that had happened in that area, or he would get absolutely nothing substantial at all to go on. She doesn't really give him anything to fucking go on, though. It's That's the thing, is she just says the corner of Pearl and Phillips and leaves it at that, and it's like, well, you know, you could say that he, like, left two roses, uh, presumably two people might have died there, I don't know, but she doesn't, she doesn't fucking do any of that shit, so... She has all of these creepy photos of Bruce that she took while tailing him, which is fucking weird. I'd still go there, even knowing that she's a raving fucking lunatic. And I gotta say, it's it's just, I'm in love with Kim Basinger. That's all I can say. Bob shows Joker the photos that he took while tailing Knox. The Joker calls Knox a loss when he sees him. And I gotta say, I honestly can't argue with that. Then he sees Vicky Vale and is instantly in love and wants her. Then we're back at Axis Chemicals again, and Joker is up to something, but we don't know what. He tells a man working the assembly line at the plant to ship all he's got because he's got big plans for the chemicals. We get this killer news show sequence. The female anchor reports on a story about these two models who mysteriously died as a result of what was labeled a violent allergic reaction. But the two models are pictured with these really creepy Joker-style smiles. Then the male anchor talks about the city's 200th anniversary festival, which is a recurring story that keeps getting talked about, and it's actually what the end of this movie culminates at. He's interrupted with some breaking news about three mysterious deaths at a beauty parlor, and the female anchor that was just talking just bursts out laughing, and it interrupts the whole report and she can't stop laughing and falls out of her chair and onto the floor. They call some paramedics, but she appears to be super dead, it would seem, and her face has a permanent Joker-style smile all of a sudden, like the models did. Then the Joker interrupts the broadcast remotely, and he puts on, like, a makeshift commercial. I honestly love this fucking sequence. It's so Jokerish to me. It's fucking great. He's advertising this new product of his called Smilex, Basically, it's like a line of beauty products. Joker suggests that chances are pretty good people have already been buying these dangerous products and don't even know it. I just love this as a Joker plot. It's a stupid kind of thing that only the Joker would think to do to kill people in large numbers. Bruce looks in Jack Napier's file and realizes that he has a knack for chemistry and realizes a potential angle for him with the plot with these products. Bruce says, Alfred, let's go shopping. And I'm like, fuck, I want to see them go shopping. I mean, Alfred pushing around a little shopping cart and trying to talk to Bruce, who is enthusiastically picking out stuff. Man, that'd be fucking awesome. Why didn't they put that in this movie? The news then reports that the city is now on a forced fast and they're not using any beauty and hygiene products at all. So these anchors are looking wicked ugly with no makeup, and I'd be willing to bet that they ironically probably had to make them up to look as bad as they do 
that, you know, like a lot, they look a lot worse than they would without makeup on. At City Hall, the mayor is yelling at Dent about getting the Joker situation handled so they can have the 200th anniversary gala. Dent is obviously frustrated, and my question is, what is Mayor Borg doing that's actually fucking constructive? What a bag of shit. I mean, you can act like that's your part in this to yell at Dent all you want, but in reality, you're not doing jack shit. So Vicky leaves Bruce a message that she'll be late in meeting him at the museum, and Bruce is like, um, okay, but I don't have any museum plans with Vicky at all, so that's kind of weird. It turns out that Joker set the whole museum date up, pretending to be Bruce's people. So we see Vicky at the museum, and she's waiting impatiently for Bruce. She's wearing this blue, long-sleeved dress, and I've gotta say, there is no woman, no matter how beautiful, that looks good in these long sleeves. She looks like she's got man hands from that episode of Seinfeld, you know? Vicky is delivered a gas mask ventilator thing to put on, and suddenly this crazy purple knockout gas fills the museum and kills everyone. Then we get an alternate video for Prince's party man as the Joker and his men go around and deface the art in the museum with bright paint. Joker is basically made up to look like he has a normal skin tone again during this, and they did a good job making it look like the skin tone was off, like it looks like he's made up. And that's really the way it should be. Joker makes his way to Vicky, who is still sitting at the table with her mask on, and he looks through her portfolio and calls it complete trash, except for the Corto Maltese photos of what appears to be some sort of tragic national event that Vicky photographed and got notoriety across the world for. Joker explains his way of making art, which is basically by developing the art until someone dies. He presents Alicia, who is wearing a creepy artsy mask. Joker has Alicia reveal her face, and it freaks Vicky out pretty fucking bad, but honestly, despite all of that, it's not really that bad. Like, she's honestly, she still looks good. I'd, I'd go there. Joker corners Vicky and goes to spray her with his flower thingy that shoots acid. Vicky then throws water in his face, and he reacts like the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz, previously covered on this podcast, Connective Tissue Motherfucker. Then, he reveals the white skin under his makeup and says, Boo, and laughs. Suddenly, Batman breaks through the skylight above them in one of the greatest moments in cinema history. He lands next to Vicky, and he picks her up and fires a line launcher gadget that allows him to zipline to the exit. And it's so fucking sweet, guys. I really like this moment a lot. Joker says the line, Where does he get those wonderful toys? Batman tells Vicky to get in the car, and she's like, Which one? And then we get the reveal of the coolest car ever to appear in a motion picture, the Batmobile. Specifically, this 1989 Batmobile is and will always be my favorite. Neat tidbit about that, upon seeing the initial life-size polystyrene model of the Batmobile, Tim Burton turned to art director Terry Ackland Snow and said, Great, where's the door? The design team suddenly realized that the design lacked any doors and, inspired by the cockpit of a Harrier jump jet, Terry came up with the idea of the sliding cockpit. Another fun fact, the Batmobile was built on the chassis of a Chevy Impala and incorporated the engine of an Impala, the taillights of a Ferrari, the fuel caps of a London bus, and jet engine parts from a Harrier jump jet. The sliding cockpit was also inspired by that of a Harrier. Art director Terry Ackland Snow added the headlights of a Honda Civic to the vehicle after noticing them on his wife's car. One more little tidbit, the Batmobile was 20 feet 
long, had an eight foot wheelbase, and weighed one and a half tons. Two prototypes were built for filming. The flames that shoot from the rear were created using paraffin. As a special promotion around the film's release date, MTV held a Steal the Batmobile contest where the winner would be awarded one of the prototypes that had the engine removed. They take off in the Batmobile and Joker's men pursue them throughout the city. And I do find it amazing that in order to make a simple 90 degree turn at somewhat high speeds of maybe 30 miles per hour, the Batmobile has to fire like a fucking tow cable and latch onto a pillar first to really leverage the turn. They dead-ended a giant piece of construction equipment and get out and run on foot. Batman says shields into a voice thing and the Batmobile actuates its fucking security system that covers it in metal armor so basically no one can fuck with it. They come to an alley and Batman is going to try to repel up to a catwalk above and he asks Vicky how much she weighs and she says, um, about 108, I think. Which is not really a fair estimate, I don't think. I mean, don't get me wrong. She's a very beautiful woman, but she's no 108-pound woman. She's too tall for that, honestly. So Batman seemingly shoots his bat rope straight forward, despite the catwalk being presented as directly above. I don't really get that. It's definitely right above them, and why present it like he's firing the grapnel forward? It would be just as easy to do it, unless... There was something with the suit where if he extended his arms up like that, maybe it showed something. I don't know. I, I'm just spitballing here. The two of them get halfway up and Batman has to give her the rope and fall and meet his fate because the two of them weighed too much for the line that they were on. He lands on the ground and after a small scuffle, the Joker's men shoot him. They kind of investigate Batman's body and when they go to remove his mask, Vicky takes a photo from above and the Flash kind of gives her away, which is even more unfortunate because I'm quite certain that Flash wouldn't work in this setting anyway. They go to shoot her, and this distracts them just enough so that Batman can bring his fists to what appears to be a gunfight and fucks up these bad guys pretty bad. Then this bad guy with two swords flips in from behind a fence and initiates a duel with Batman. Again, all Batman has are his fists. That's all he's using the battering is not really used in this movie by itself, and it's a crying shame, but Batman holds his own, of course, and ultimately knocks the sword guy out, despite being a pretty serious threat. Vicky was taking pics the entire time that this was going on. Batman says, shields open into his voice thing, and the Batmobile de-armors itself and starts up and takes off by itself, despite Batman recklessly not being able to confirm that it wasn't dangerous for that to happen, or problematic in any way. There could have been people in the way. There could have been more construction equipment. Who knows? Batman finds Vicky and kindly notifies her that she weighs a little more than 108, which she is thrilled to hear. Maybe just ask her if she's pregnant, Batman. I mean, women love that. So they go out to the middle of nowhere in the Batmobile. She wants to know where they're going, but he says nothing because he's a fucking badass. Vicky tries to get a look at his face and he flips on a light to obscure her vision. They go into this tunnel and arrive at this infamous bat cave. He legitimately almost lets Vicky walk off a very high ledge that she most certainly would have died falling off of, but he tells her to be careful finally, and so she doesn't die. Batman sits down in his bat chair at his bat computer and begins explaining what the Joker appears to be up to. He explains that the Joker has tainted hundreds of chemicals at the source, Apparently he did it in a sneaky way though, instead of just making all of the products dangerous by themselves, he made it so they weren't dangerous alone. 
Batman gives the example that hairspray wouldn't kill someone alone, but hairspray mixed with lipstick and perfume would be toxic and untraceable. This is where Jack Napier having a background in chemistry has come into play in this plot. Vicky wants to know how Batman figured it all out, but he doesn't really say. He gives her his findings to take to the press, and she says that she might have some trouble with that. She says that a lot of people think that Batman is as bad as the Joker. Vicky says, I mean, let's face it, you're not exactly normal, are you? And Batman fires back and says, it's not exactly a normal world, is it? Love it. Fucking love it. Vicky wants to know why Batman brought her there when he could have easily sent the info to the press himself. He tells her she does have something else he wants and raises his cape. And we don't really know what happens initially. We just see the screen go dark and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of like bats that are just squeaking really loud and shit. It's pretty fucking confusing. Vicky wakes up at home in bed and realizes that what he wanted was the film because it's gone from where it was, nestled somewhere in her bosom. He knew he couldn't have the photos of him leak, so that's why he wanted them. But I'm trying to piece this together. So this is the sequence of events. Batman knocked her out in the cave, I guess. He went fishing around in her bra for the film canister, which is a classy move. He brought her back to her place while still in full costume, presumably. And then... When she wakes up, it's fucking daylight outside when it was clearly night before. And she just then realizes that he took the film. She didn't have any recollection of anything else, which is not not good news for Batman. That that doesn't sound like he, he got that film canister out of there by uh, respectable means, I guess. Elfman's score is fucking amazing. I, I do want to mention that. It just reminded me as we got that little sequence, there was quite a bit of scoring in it. I really like it. It's... I. I I haven't mentioned it enough, but it's so fucking great. Knox calls Vicky and she tells him that she has something that is a very hot story that she needs to get in the evening edition of the paper. They publish the story on Batman cracking the Joker's scheme wide open. The news reports on it and naturally the Joker destroys TV two out of two, this time by just shooting it with a gun. He says, I have given a name to my pain and it is Batman. Alfred convinces Bruce that he needs to go see Vicky and tell her the truth about what's really going on with him. So he goes to her apartment and they get into an argument. Vicky was very hurt that Bruce lied to her about leaving town, which is fair since the truth would have made everything easier than what he actually said, so I don't really understand it. But Bruce basically just tells her to shut up because he has something to tell her. Then he goes into this long, drawn-out thing about how people sometimes have different sides of their personalities, and sometimes it even leads to leading a different life. She assumes that he's telling her that he's married. Basically, long story short, he can't tell her what he wants to say because someone comes to the door, and wouldn't you know it, the fucking Joker shows up. He's upset with Vicky for running off on him with Batman at the museum, Vicky just screams so fucking much in this movie. It's fucking ridiculous. Like, he shows Vicky Alicia's mask and tells her Alicia committed suicide, and then he smashes the mask, and when he smashes it, Vicky screams very loudly. Bruce interrupts the conversation, and I love the Joker says, Bruce Wayne, Nespa, which means, I believe, Bruce Wayne, isn't it? And Bruce says most of the time, which is the perfect way for Bruce Wayne slash Batman to respond to that question. Bruce tells the Joker that he knows who he is, and honestly, that doesn't really fit the comic book version of Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne always acts like he doesn't fucking know what the hell's going on because he's trying to create a cover personality, you know, where it's like 
people can't figure out that he's Batman, but why is Bruce Wayne telling Jack Napier that he knows who he is? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, it's a pretty cool interaction between Bruce and the Joker. Bruce talks about what a bad guy this Jack Napier was. We get Bruce smashing a vase on the mantle with a fire poker with the classic line, You want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. The Joker pulls a derringer on Bruce and asks him if he's ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight, and Bruce seems taken aback by this particular question. Joker shoots Bruce with a gun, and Bruce slumps down in the corner. Then Vicky comes back from seeing the Joker out and finds that Bruce is gone. There's a silver serving tray on the ground that Bruce seemingly used under his shirt to shield the bullet. The bullet is lodged in the tray, and Vicky is seemingly confused by the whole thing. Back at the paper, Knox shows Vicky what he found out about the alley she asked him to look into. Vicky finds out that this is where Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered when he was a child. Bruce was there and witnessed the whole thing. But, like, does no one at this newspaper know anything about what was a front-page story involving two of Gotham's most famous citizens? Even if it was several years ago, come the fuck on. He has the story up on a microfilm reader, and I gotta say, the past seems like it was fucking exhausting. Can you imagine just slowly going through all of this microfilm, trying to fucking figure out what you're looking for? Fuck that. Vicky gets up and walks away all distraught, and Knox tells her not to get personal. Bruce is in the Batcave, and he reads through a file Alfred got him on his parents. Alfred seems like something is weighing on him, and he needs to say something. Bruce asks him what's up, and Alfred says, I have no wish to fill my few remaining years grieving for the loss of old friends, or their sons. Michael Keaton looks so fucking 80s in this movie in a lot of scenes. He's got those fucking glasses with the earpieces that curl all the way around to the bottom of your ear, and he's wearing a black turtleneck in one scene, and his hair is all poofy. It's honestly like early Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld hair, It looks hilarious. Mayor Borg announces on TV that the 200th anniversary gala has been indefinitely postponed. Joker interrupts the broadcast, and he announces that the event should go on and that he intends to drop $20 in cash on the crowd. This is an obvious ploy to get the people to come to the parade, and he specifically calls out Batman and says that he's the one who has brought real terror to Gotham City. Then Bruce, who is watching the broadcast in the Batcave, reads the newspaper clippings from his parents' file, and has a flashback. We see how the Waynes were leaving a theater, and a couple of muggers stopped them to steal their valuables. After a small scuffle, one of the criminals shoots Thomas and Martha Wayne in front of their son, and the criminal turns the gun on young Bruce and asks him if he's ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight. But the other bad guy he's with convinces him not to stick around and shoot the kid, and the other guy refers to him as Jack. So we know definitively that Jack Napier slash the Joker shot the Waynes, and that's a version of the story that is only present in this film. In most other stories, it's a man often known as Joe Chill, and he is a lowlife who kills the Waynes, and he's he doesn't become the Joker or anything. Alfred lets fucking Vicky into the Batcave without warning. She decides to talk with Bruce and says more shit that would seem completely insane for a non-attractive person to say. She says that she's loved him since she met him and that the night they had together was something special. It was truly just one fucking date. Bruce insists that he must stop the Joker because he's the only one that can do it. 
So Batman suits the fuck up in a brief sequence, and we see the Batmobile blow through the gates of Axis chemicals and all of the Joker's men are shooting at it. The Batmobile drops what appears to be a tiny bomb that packs a wall up, and the Batmobile drives out of the plant with explosions happening all around. The Batmobile meets Batman as it exits the plant, revealing that the vehicle was unmanned the whole time, and the Joker shows up in a helicopter to taunt Batman. It's amazing to think that Robin was actually going to be in this story. I've seen the storyboard featurette on the extras in the DVD, and it just would have bogged this movie way the fuck down. Then we see Jokers in the main float at the parade, and there are a bunch of those giant balloons around. These are just regular giant parade balloons, not ones used to disperse toxic gas or anything, if that's what you're thinking. Nothing to be alarmed about here. Knox and Vicky show up to take pictures of the people going after the money that the Joker is throwing around, and Joker addresses the crowd and mockingly comments on how Batman is probably at home washing his tights. Joker is dumping money on the crowd in this moment and really is drawing people in. Neat story on that, a scene was cut from the parade sequence but made it into the comic book version of the script where the crowd discovered that all the money the Joker was handing out was counterfeit. This was in a follow-up to the Joker's earlier line that he wanted his face on the $1 bill. All of the dollar bills that were thrown to the crowd had the Joker's picture in place of George Washington's. Joker sees the Batwing flying in the sky above and instructs his men to put on gas masks. Then the Joker initiates the balloons to start dispensing toxic Smilex gas. Vicky is taking pictures and sees what's going on and tells Knox, and Knox tells her to get in the car, and he just decides that he wants to be a useless hero for a bit and try and stop the crazed people from causing mischief, despite the fact that all he has is this little N95 mask that he's just holding on with his hand. Batman swoops in, flying the Batwing, and uses a device on the front of it to wrangle the cables from the different balloons and remove their tethers. Had the Batwing been built to size, it would have had a 35-foot wingspan. The Joker gets very upset about this display Batman put on. Batman flies way up in the air to release the balloons, and Joker yells out, He stole my balloons! And then Joker shoots Bob for being one of the people who didn't tell him that Batman had one of those things. Batman flies up after releasing the balloons, and the Batwing stops and silhouettes against the moon, and it's ridiculous, but it's super fucking cool looking. As Batman reapproaches, he has the most frustrating showdown with the Joker. He uses the Batwing's targeting system to lock onto the Joker, and he fires guns and missiles at him, but literally nothing hits him at all somehow. Then Joker pulls out this absurdly long 2-3 to three foot revolver and shoots down the Batwing in one shot. The Batwing crashes into the steps by the cathedral, and Vicky stops to see if Batman is okay, but she can't really find him in the wreckage. Joker holds her at gunpoint and makes her come up with him to the top of the cathedral. Batman is revealed to be alive when Vicky and Joker leave the crash site, and he pursues them. Gordon and his group of officers head into the cathedral shortly after Batman goes in, but Joker shoots his flower's acid onto a giant bell and causes it to fall off and drop down and block a doorway that the police need to use. So now it's seemingly just Batman, Joker, and Vicky up in this belfry. But wait, there's more. Joker unleashes a couple of men to attack Batman. I'm going to fill in some storytelling blanks here because I don't like plot holes. 
When the Joker first apprehended Vicky outside the cathedral and called for transportation, it is reasonable to assume that this cued the Joker's men to drop some extra guys in the top of the cathedral for protection. That's what would make the most sense to me in this scenario, at least. Otherwise, why would they even be up there at all? Batman takes out the first guy with ease, a la Indiana Jones and Raiders, but with no gun. The second guy is a bad motherfucker, honestly. Like, he's fucking ruthless and tough as nails and enormous, solid bad guy henchman here. Batman pulls this move where he makes it seem like he's fallen down the stairwell to his death, but when the bad guy looks down, Batman's legs pop up from under the ledge, and he pulls the bad guy down to his death. That whole moment is a little iffy and unexplainable to me. I can't really wrap my head around how Batman accomplished that. Like, how do you actually look like you're falling as much as he looked like he was falling? I mean, I guess he could have used a bat rope or something. I don't know. Vicky and Joker are dancing, and she sees Batman and decides to seize an opportunity to fuck with the Joker. Although I'm not really sure why the Joker buys it, he totally fucking does. And I, I just, I guess, I mean... It's fucking Kim Basinger, for Christ's sake. But I guess I'd be pretty shocked by the whole thing, and I'd naturally be skeptical, I would think. Batman makes his presence known and starts fighting with the Joker. Joker spits out some novelty, chattering teeth covered in blood. Then he criticizes Batman for having made him into what he is, and Batman points out that the Joker made him first by killing his parents. And I don't really like the idea that Batman essentially shows his hand and says... Hey, I'm Bruce Wayne. Like, I I feel like that's what he does there. Batman manages to knock Joker off the ledge, and when he and Vicky go to look down, Joker has somehow not only not fallen to his death, but has also got the leverage to where he's able to pull the two of them down to hang off the ledge while he is standing there. Not really sure I can buy that, honestly, especially to a point where I'm to believe that they can't see him before he pulls them down. Joker is now standing on a ledge with Batman and Vicky hanging beneath him, and he's teasing them and smashing bricks free from the ledge where they're hanging. They're holding on for dear life, and the Joker's men spot him and aim to rescue him in a helicopter. The Joker gets on the ladder that they drop down from the helicopter, and Batman fires a bat rope that tethers Joker to a statue at the corner of the building, and Joker's on the bottom couple of rungs of the ladder, The statue becomes dislodged and is hanging from Joker's ankle, and ultimately it's too much weight for the Joker to bear while on the ladder, and he falls to his death. Then, the part of the building that Batman and Vicky are on breaks free, and Batman has to fire another grapnel to save them. They end up dangling by the small cable and face each other in a super fucking romantic way. It's very sweet. In the 4K UHD version, they most definitely appear to be a couple of dolls hanging up there in the wide shots. That's the risk that you run when remastering these older movies that no one expected to be seen in such high picture quality. Commissioner Gordon finds the Joker's body and it has some weird laugh box in its pocket. I'm not really sure what the story is on that. Gordon gives a speech about rounding up all of the Joker's men. Dent reveals that they received a letter from Batman and it says, Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned a rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again... Call me. Knox quickly asks how they call him, and Gordon reveals that Batman gave them a bat signal spotlight to shine in the sky to request his help. Vicky goes and gets in a car with Alfred, and Alfred says that Bruce is going to be a bit late. Then we pan up to see Batman looking out over the city on a rooftop with the bat signal in the background, 
And I think that was a doll too, honestly, but I don't fucking care. It's fucking sweet. So that's when we roll credits. That's the end of the movie. So praise for this movie. Where do I begin? The cinematography is amazing. There are a lot of cool scenes, a lot of cool shots. The plot is exceptionally comic book-like to me, despite what we know about the filmmaker's comic book knowledge. Keaton and Nicholson honestly knock it out of the park in this movie, but there are truly no bad performances here. The costumes, the Batmobile, and the Batwing designs are the best we've ever seen on screen. The score is fucking immaculate. And for criticism, I'll just say that the Prince songs that they put in this movie make it feel very dated in those scenes. I wish they hadn't gone that route at all. That's the only thing I really don't love about this. It makes it feel so fucking dated. For trivia, in the late 1970s, Batman's popularity was waning. CBS was interested in producing a Batman in Outer Space film. Filmmakers had trouble getting studios to sign on for a darker-toned Batman story, as they wanted something more similar to the campy 1960s Adam West version of the character. Originally, Tom Mankiewicz completed a script called The Batman in June of 1983, focusing on Batman and Dick Grayson's origins, with the Joker and Rupert Thorne as villains and Silver St. Cloud as the romantic interest. When fans found out that Tim Burton was directing and Michael Keaton was playing Batman, many feared for what tone the film might have. Robin Williams was offered the role of Joker when Jack Nicholson hesitated. He had even accepted the role, and when producers approached Nicholson again and told him Williams would take the part if he did not, Nicholson took the role, and Williams was released. Williams resented being used as bait and not only refused to play Riddler in Batman Forever from 1995, but also refused to be involved in any Warner Brothers productions until the studio apologized. Jack Nicholson received a percentage of the gross on the film, and due to its massive box office take, he took home around $60 million. When adjusting for inflation, this equals roughly $143.4 million in 2022 dollars. Michael Keaton, who calls himself a logic freak, was concerned that Batman's secret identity would, in reality, be fairly easy to uncover and discussed ideas with Burton to better disguise the character, including the use of contact lenses. Ultimately, Keaton decided to perform Batman's voice at a lower register than when he was portraying Bruce Wayne. This technique became a staple of future portrayals of Batman in film, television, and video games, especially those of Kevin Conroy and Christian Bale. Michael Keaton was unable to hear while wearing the Batsuit. He said that his claustrophobia helped him get into the proper mood to play Batman. It made me go inward, and that's how I wanted the character to be anyway, to be withdrawn, he said. In order to combat negative rumors about the production, a theatrical trailer was hastily assembled to be distributed to theaters. To test its effectiveness, Warner Brothers executives showed it at a theater in Westwood, California, to an unsuspecting audience. The 90-second trailer received a standing ovation. Later, it would become a popular bootleg at comic book conventions. It took two hours for the makeup artists to change Jack Nicholson into the Joker. 355 silicone adhesive had to be used due to Nicholson's allergy to spirit gum slash latex. Prosthetic makeup designer Nick Dudman used acrylic-based makeup paint called Pax for Nicholson's chalk white face. It was tricky finding the right shade of white in contrast to the dark sets and lighting since pure white would blow out the brightness and flatten the contrast in Nicholson's face. 
The only actors who appear in all four Tim Burton slash Joel Schumacher films are Pat Hingle, who plays Commissioner Gordon, and Michael Goff, who plays Alfred. Based on his success with Superman from 1978, Richard Donner was considered to direct. He wanted Mel Gibson to star as Batman. The original script featured a bitter rivalry between Bruce Wayne and Knox over Vicki Vale. At one point, Steven Spielberg was interested in doing a Batman film. He wanted Harrison Ford as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Michael J. Fox as Robin slash Dick Grayson, Tim Curry as the Joker, Dustin Hoffman as the Penguin, Gina Davis as Silver St. Cloud, John Pertwee as Alfred Pennyworth, Burt Reynolds as Commissioner Gordon, Martin Sheen as Harvey Dent, and Richard Dreyfuss as Rupert Thorne. Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen reportedly turned down the chance to make the film because they didn't want to do a film that wasn't theirs or presumably that they didn't have creative control over. For an IMDb nugget, okay, Sylvester Stallone has cited this film as what led to the decline of muscle-bound action stars from the 1980s and a change in how action films were made. In an interview, he said, It was the beginning of a new era. The visuals took over. The special effects became more important than the single person. I wish I had thought of Velcro muscles myself. I didn't have to go to the gym all those years, all those hours wedded to the iron game, as we call it. It's such a Sylvester Stallone quote, but I would say as far as action movies are concerned, I think Die Hard, which came out a year earlier in 1988, changed the tone of the action world. John McClane's character was not some buff Schwarzenegger type, and far more of the action movies that came out after it ran with the everyday guy look that focused on effects and that didn't just have some muscle-bound guy running the show. For info and ratings, we have a runtime of 126 minutes, a budget of $35 million, opening weekend $40.5 million, worldwide gross $411.6 million, IMDb rating 7.5, Rotten Tomato Critics score 73%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 84%, personal rating 8 out of 5 stars, yeah that's right. This is my favorite movie of all time. I fucking love it. All right, everyone. Well, that's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Obviously, reach out to me. Let me know if you have any suggestions or requests or anything like that. I would be glad to entertain them at the very least. And honestly, if you're interested in being a guest on my show, reach out to me and let me know about that too because I wouldn't mind having some more guests on this. I mean, it would be kind of cool, I think. Okay, so I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.